Okay, I think we got Jane on the phone now. So we're going to um, we're going to put Jane on speaker. All right, here we go. All right, here we go. All right. Hello, Jane. Hello. How are you? Oh, we have Jane on the line now. Hello, Jane. <laughs> Supposed to have me on the line at 11. I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was supposed to call in. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry about that too. I really am. Well, okay, let's get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> I like your style. I like your style. All right. Okay, you'll like it for about three minutes, and then that's enough of that nonsense. Nah, 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 nah. You, you, you did. We're going to get to know each other because you and I have similar styles. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, it's like I said, you were basically on, I know you were on my bucket list uh, of people that I knew I wanted to talk to before I left this terrestrial ball. Most definitely, here too. <laughs> Are you on your way out? <laughs> nah, I'm not. This was to make it all the more special. I can enjoy it for a little bit longer before I have to leave. Um, but hang on for a while because I intend to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, sister. Okay, so we wanted to know. I mean, watching the eye of the storm, I and it it, it was definitely a very inspirational uh, uh, video uh, segment that we saw when you uh, first it, it when it started to track the first time they had. Uh, televised you doing the experiment of the brown eyes and blue eyes uh, in Riceville, Iowa. And I mean, I, I know you've said it in other interviews, I know you've talked about it, but I would like you to tell our audience um, exactly what, I mean, I know that King's death was the impetus for this, but Riceville, Iowa, predominantly black. I mean, excuse me, predominantly white. What, what possessed you to do that? <laughs> well, I was teaching in an all-white, all-Christian community, and nobody seemed to care that the man, the one man, in my experience, mm -hmm. who cared enough to to offer up his life mm -hmm. in order to end or decrease the level of racism in this country. Nobody seemed to care about that. Mm -hmm. I had to, I had to, he had been one of our heroes of the month in February in my third grade classroom because we thought he was all about hope. Right. Mm -hmm. And for me, for me, hope is an acronym for holding on to positive energy. Mm -hmm. And that's what he seemed to be doing. And my students and I were really admired that man. And, and he was one of our heroes of the month in February and assassinated in April. There's no way you can explain that to third graders. Mm -hmm. There's no way you can explain that to little white kids in an all-white community right. who believe in all those things that they learned in Sunday school and practice none of them. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I had to go into my classroom the next day and try 
to give them an experience, not an experiment. This was not an experiment. Mm. And if it was an experiment, then what we're doing in this society on a daily basis is experimenting with people. Right. Mm. I went into my classroom the next day and created a microcosm of society in my third grade classroom. Mm. I did what Donald Trump is doing right now in this country. Mm. I picked out a group of people on the basis of a physical characteristic over which they had no control. He is using a religious belief. Mm-hmm. I called them. I didn't call them the other, but I indicated that all the problems we had in the classroom were because of those kids. Mm-hmm. And the physical characteristic that I used was eye color. Mm-hmm. In this country, we use skin color. Right. All over the world, we use skin color. Right. I did in my classroom what we do worldwide, and mm-hmm. I did it in for a, for one day with the brown-eyed people on top the first day, and the next day blue-eyed people were on top. Mm-hmm. And we all learned more than I wanted to teach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I learned more than the kids did. Mm. Because I found out then the the thing that you see, that's the third time I did the exercise. The first time I did it was the day after he was killed. Right. Mm. And it was it was absolutely the most powerful lesson I have ever been allowed to learn from. Mm. I found out the first minute of that exercise, the way it feels to be treated unkindly because of a physical characteristic over which you have no control. Mm. And I found out immediately by watching what my brown-eyed third graders were doing, that the way they were behaving was the way they had been taught to behave Mm -hmm. by white people. I found out while white people looked to people of color, and I didn't like what I saw, I didn't like it at all, because I watched my brown-eyed third graders become me. Mm -hmm. I watched them become arrogant, Mm -hmm. judgmental, demanding, abrasive, aggressive, um, unfair. Mm-hmm. It was 10 minutes. It was absolutely unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It has always been my belief, Jane, I mean, in, in the years that I've done this work, it has always been my belief that um, that this superiority that white people are conditioned to believe they possess um, does tremendous harm when it comes to um, the relationships uh, that they try to maintain uh, with people of color because they can't see themselves not in that position. I know it's a double negative. I know you're an educator, but they can't see themselves outside of that view. And so it always, at some point in time, unless they have a somewhat of an intervention like you perform, it always comes back to I'm superior in some sort of way. But that's a choice we make. Right. And we make it. Right now there are people going around and have been for about 15 years talking about white privilege. This isn't about white privilege. Mm -hmm. It's about white ignorance. Mm -hmm. This is about our freedom to be ignorant about those who are different from ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this is about five to 600 years of conditioning Mm -hmm. to the myth of white superiority and to the myth of three or four different races. There's only one race. Mm-hmm. Someone has said, nothing can stop a man with a dream or an idea whose time has come. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream, a dream in which people would be judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. That dream is more alive today than it was when he was living because 
we now can relate to the dream, and we can't tear him apart anymore because he's dead. So mm. now we're, we're fighting for the dream. Mm. And all, we can't stop an idea whose time has come. The idea of one race is an idea whose time has come. We aren't going to be able to stop it. And I mm. think that's what is bothering white people right now, is mm. the fact that they're just members of the human race. Mm. They're not superior members of the human race, and it's going to astonish them when they finally catch on to the idea that God is a spirit and has neither gender nor color, but white people have done what we do wherever we go. We have altered the environment to fit our needs. We have turned God into an old white man with a long gray beard that looks like Charlton Heston playing Moses. And we have managed, think about it, we have also managed to make the Holy Family, make Joseph, who was probably Mary's father, not, not Mary's husband, we have managed to make Joseph into a white man with brown hair and Mary into a blonde, blue-eyed, pale-skinned person who is a Jewish in the, in the Middle East, and we've managed to make Jesus into a, something who looks like a little Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> our, our son Ezekiel is, is, is doing his best. exactly what we've done, and it's yeah. what we, as good white folks, do. One of the major differences between white people and other member groups is when white people come into a new environment, they immediately adjust the environment to fit their needs. Right. Yes. When people of other color groups come into a new environment, they immediately adjust their needs to fit the environment. Yeah, yes. exactly. And so we have adjusted even God mm -hmm. to fit white people's needs. We need right. to have somebody who looks like us if we're going to pray to him or her. Right. Obviously, it's going to be a him because men were allowed to write the Bible. Yeah. Scary thought. What was your question? <laughs> well, uh, when you when you're referring to uh, to to Mary Joseph and Jesus, our, our son, our 15 year old son, um, who had basically participated since he was six years old in the seminars and workshops that we have done with anti racism, has been delving into the historical accuracy of uh, of Jesus, of Mary, and of Joseph. Um, there 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 are groups of people out there. <laughs> <laughs> who are trying to bring forth the truth of that matter. <laughs> well, and if, you, and if you read Broward's book, Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization, right. yeah. you find out that blacks had the Jesus story, mm -hmm. the creation story, long before white folks did. Yeah, mm. exactly, exactly. It's just, which is just funny. If you want to say there's only one race on the face of the earth, mm -hmm. then you, and there is, there's only the human race, but it was started... With a black woman, black women. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> years ago, and we all have in our genetic background memories of those black women's genetic background. Yeah. And so, if you want to talk about a race, there's only one race. Well, yeah, it's the black race. Everybody else is just faded. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't get this sort of diversity when it comes to uh, uh, skin color and eye color from recessive genes, which is what those things are. Uh, the dominant genes being darker skin and brown eyes. So. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's scientifically, you know, off base when they try to come up with this uh, Adam and Eve story where they look like, you know, you know, Ken and Barbie doll and, you know, the well, Garden I, of Eden. I love the Adam and Eve story because yeah. obviously Adam was made out of dirt. Dirt <laughs> in the Garden of Eden had to be black because it was made from. <laughs> 
vegetation. Yeah. is black. So the first man was undoubtedly black. Mm-hmm. He was made out of rib tissue. All bone tissue is white. <laughs> so obviously, the first couple of in the creation story was a black man and a white woman. And I've gone to both, so I know how that's going to go over. Yeah. I've never heard it explained that way. Yeah. <laughs> to a place now of asking about your personal journey here. Um, and uh, you, you talked about, you know, the, the, the powerful lesson, you know, the lesson that you didn't think you would learn or wouldn't learn in the way that you did when you did the, uh, the first uh, exercise, the brown eye, blue eye exercise. Uh, but we want to, my wife would like to ask you about your um, the, the impact when it came to your community. Now, I've heard a little bit of this story, but I, I think she would like to ask a more poignant or more directed question when it comes to that. Well, go for it. All right. <laughs> you want to be sure you want to hear the answer. Oh, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go right ahead. We do. We do. I okay. mean, that, that, I mean the, the, only, the only way that we're going to get beyond the place that we are at is if we speak the truth. So um, <laughs> that's why we have you on, and thank you. <laughs> Oh, you'll be sorry. That wasn't good. My great 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 grandfather was one of the first settlers. <laughs> great great grandfather was one of the first settlers in that in that area. Mm. Mm. And so we had a reputation for being for being quite um, remarkable human beings because we. <laughs> my dad was the most honest man I've ever known in my life. Mm. Absolutely honest and absolutely moral. Mm. And we had a good reputation. And then I went into my classroom, and I only got that job because my sister. Re- resigned because she had a chance to adopt a child. So I went in and applied for the job. And the superintendent said, if I'm going to lose one, Jemison, if I take another one, I'll be all right. But he didn't realize that he wasn't getting the same thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> Mary was, my sister Mary, well, she was a blessed virgin, let me tell you. So she was, she was uh, gentle and kind and accepting and not a bit aggressive. Mm-hmm. So he hired me, and I'm the opposite of all of the above. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, I I saw the racism, I saw the sexism, I saw the ageism, and I spoke up constantly. Mm-hmm. Because you can't be an educator and leave people out of ignorance no. by refusing right. to recognize what's really happening with your kids and mm-hmm. with your teachers and with your community. Exactly. So I was kind of a kind of hard to deal with. But I could teach children how to read because I had taken a course in Orton-Gillingham Phonics two years after I got the job. I took a course in Orton-Gillingham Phonics, and so I could teach every child who came to my classroom to read. And it wouldn't have mattered, actually, what I did with my students as long as I teach every one of them to read. And I could. And the kids in the film that you saw, all of them are, were and are, moderately to severely dyslexic. None of them were supposed to graduate from high school. Mm-hmm. All of them did, except one who 
was killed in an alcohol-related accident two weeks before graduation. Those kids are where they are today, partially because of that exercise. Because the day you're on the top of that exercise, you find out how really smart you are. And you never agree to go back to being what your former teachers have accused you of being mm -hmm. again. That's exactly. the danger of the exercise. And right. that's the danger of what ha what's happening in this country right now. Yeah. That's the danger of having a black man in the White House. That mm -hmm. man proved that people mm -hmm. of color were just as smart as white people. And mm -hmm. in many cases, much smarter. Mm -hmm. Obviously, obviously, Barack Obama is a hundred times smarter than the man who's there now. Number forty-five. Can't when you talk about forty-five. I think that's his IQ score. I'm not sure. <laughs> Probably not a lot higher than that. It's just um, we just the thing with having a black man as brilliant as Barack Obama is in the White House made every white male look to the hills of laurels and say to himself, "Oh my God, maybe there are a bunch of them out there." And there are a yeah. bunch of them out there. Well, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of them out there who are, who are, anyway, you want to know what I went through. <laughs> <laughs> so coming back to your, your introduction as the school teacher, that was quite different than your sister. Um, you had mentioned that they pretty much let you do what you wanted to do as long as you were teaching the students how to read. How That's did exactly they? It. How did they respond? Um, how did your your principal, your school administration, your staff? How did they respond back in the 1960s when you first started this? And have they you seen? They didn't know that it was going to happen because I didn't tell anybody it was going to happen. I didn't think that it was necessary to tell anyone that I was going to educate my students about what Martin Luther King Jr. went through in order to understand why he was doing what he did. I didn't think I needed permission to bring that information to my students. I had brought them lots of other information. I didn't think that would be a problem. And so I went into my classroom. I decided not before, when I was watching what uh, Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather said to leaders of the black community, I was so appalled by their questions. But I knew that the next morning, I was going to have to give a better answer to my students than those men had to and I was going to have to answer questions better than those black males were allowed to answer questions mm -hmm. because the questions that were asked were so offensive and so insulting. One of them said to three leaders of the black community, when our leader was killed, his widow held us together. Who's going to keep your people in line? Mm -hmm. The implications of that question were so vile and so ugly. So I changed the challenge. There's another one saying, don't you Negroes think that you should feel sympathy for us whites because we can't feel the anger at this killing that you Negroes can? Mm. Now, uh, for God's sake, how could you not feel anger at the killing of that man? Exactly. I was just right. Right. And right. I knew that the next morning I was going to do what Adolf Hitler did. I was going to pick out a group of people on the basis of a physical characteristic over which they have no control. I was going to assign negative traits to them because of that characteristic. I was going to lower my expectations for them. I was going to force them to live down to my expectations of them. And when they did, I was going to say, see, all you people are like that. And I told you we were, and it's because of that physical characteristic. Mm. Now, when I went into my classroom that morning, my husband had warned me. I told him what I was going to do, and he said, Jane, you're going to lose your job. Mm -hmm. I said, well, if I lose my job because of this, I don't want that job. Right. Well, who's going to feed these kids? Well, I'm sorry, but I'll go to work with you. Oh, no, you won't. <laughs> you, you better not do this thing. Well, I did. <laughs> I did it. And I immediately learned that, oh, I haven't been much of a teacher, a teacher up till this point. Mm. 
And and my when I went home that night, I went to my mother's house and explained to her what I was doing. And she said, Jane, you better be careful. You don't want to end up where Aunt Eunice did. I said, well, where did Aunt Eunice end up? In a mental institution. Mm-hmm. Because what I was talking about sounded insane. Mm-hmm. Because what we do in this society is insane. Mm-hmm. We treat people positively or negatively on the basis of the amount of the chemical in their skin mm-hmm. is not to deal well with what we end up I expected to be found. I expected a cross to be birthed in my front yard. Mm. I expected mm. all the right, you must do that. Well, you must end up in a middle institution. Mm-hmm. Nobody complained. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason may have been because the kids knew, boy, something awful happened here. We better not talk to our folks about it or she'll be in trouble. <laughs> right. Or maybe they just thought, well, this is just part of the school world. It has nothing to do with reality. Mm. And they did talk about it. Right. On Sunday, I went back into my classroom and reversed the exercise, and the same kinds of things happened on Friday, on Monday, as it happened on Friday, except for one really remarkable thing. The blue-eyed students were much much less vicious to the brown-eyed students Mm -hmm. than the brown-eyed students had been to them. Mm-hmm. And I can only hope, and I can only hope to this day, that that's what people of color will do in the next 30 years when they become the numerical majority in this country and white people become the, uh, a numerical minority. I can only hope that people of color are not going to want to treat us the way we treated them. Well, and after we, on Tuesday, mm-hmm. after the kids had written their compositions about what they'd have, had happened and what they'd done, we got in a magic circle and I said, now, the blue-eyed kids, why didn't you get even with the brown-eyed kids? You said you were going to yesterday. And almost in a chorus, they said, because we didn't want to make anybody feel the way we felt the day we were on the bottom. Now, maybe that's what's going to happen. Maybe people of color are going to say, no, we know how it feels to be in that position, and we're not going to treat you the way you treated us. We can only hope that well, that's what's going to happen. Well, as a as a black person, as a black man, been black man for half, half a century. <laughs> I yeah I know compared to you I I know I know <laughs> I I found that to be the experience I was raised by my grandmother sharecropper uh, from Tennessee and I've always found that to be the experience with my elders that uh, they were far more gracious to the people who were discriminatory towards them uh, than the people had been to them. So, I mean, that's been my experience my whole life from what I've seen consistently. Uh, there's been a grace um, and there's been a uh, an acceptance that we as black people have for other folks. And, not, and it's not just always about conforming. It's a genuine, I accept you because I know what it feels like. Mm-hmm. to be mistreated. I know mm-hmm. what it like feels like to be disrespected in that fashion. So that's that's been my experience for a long time. And being the father of, you know, four children um, who happen to be Black, <laughs> considered Black, um, I've seen that they have this attitude of acceptance when it comes to that as well, to people who have been, you know, pretty rotten for them. We have created. Right. We have told people of colors other than the white color group that they're inferior, mm-hmm. that they're savage, that they are criminals, that they are thugs, and all these ugly things. And yet, and yet, we expect them to be more civil 
<laughs> accepting and more tolerant mm -hmm. than we are. Yeah. Yeah. And even though we've told them they aren't as good as, we expect them to be better than. Mm-hmm. Exactly. See, this makes no sense. This is this is what I call. This is why I say this. This makes no sense. This is insanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. White folks ought to get their act together now. <laughs> now you're gonna think she doesn't like white people. Oh yes, I do. I don't dislike white people. Some of my best friends are white. I don't dislike white men. I had absolutely 59, 60 years, 59 married with the most wonderful white man on earth. Somebody else thought he was wonderful, but I thought, my good Lord, how, how lucky did I get? So it's not that I don't like white men, I don't like the white uh, I like men, period. But I, I don't like the way we expect white people to be superior when they mm -hmm. aren't. And so men have to be superior to women, and they aren't, mm -hmm. and they have to live up to this false image of superiority, and it kills them every day. Yeah. yeah. Men die young because of the pressures we put on men to be more than they could ever be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you go, if you don't think I'm right, go to a rest home, mm -hmm. and you'll see 40 or 50 little old women and five real happy little old men. Because that's, we, we kill off the thing we love the most. Mm -hmm. by expecting too much mm -hmm. yeah then there then there are words of wisdom <laughs> those are words <laughs> so of I, wisdom i don't know whether words of wisdom but they are what i have learned over oh lord that many years mm. this next year will be the 50th year yes since the death of martin luther king jr yeah. and the 50th year that i have been doing this exercise right yes right yeah. Now there's something very wrong. John F. Kennedy said we'll be on the moon in three years, and within three years we were walking on the moon. Mm-hmm. Unless that's all made up for television. You you had mentioned that you know it's going on 50 years now, which congratulations, that's very phenomenal, especially in this type of work. Um, have you seen an ebb and flow? through the years that you have done this work in terms of a greater acceptance or a lesser acceptance? And with that, have you seen it based upon any geographical lines? I saw when Jimmy Carter was president, a difference in the way people related to one another. Mm. But it didn't last. And then I watched Ronald Reagan try to take us back to the 50s. Mm -hmm. It didn't last. And then I watched W. And I watched Bill Clinton, and then I saw what happened after the election of Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. I watched black males walk taller and with more self-esteem and with self-confidence than I'd ever seen before. And I thought, now there, there it is. There's proof. This black man is proof that black men can succeed and that black woman, that first lady, was proof that black women know what they're doing. And my, my heroes have been black women for a very long time because they raise fine sons and daughters for the most part, for the, for the, absolutely the majority of them, mm -hmm. in spite of all the nastiness that we put in their path. And I don't know how they do it, but they do it. Mm -hmm. The black women have been my heroes for a very long time. But the problem with having a black man in the White House kept all that ugliness sort of in control for a while. And then the minute he was out of the White House or was on his way out of the White House, we have a demagogue spouting the kinds of things 
that those racist people have wanted to say out loud for the last eight years and haven't been allowed to. So now this number 45 has unleashed the ugliness of those dogs who want to go after people of color. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what they're doing. And he has given them, because he's our leader, if it's all right for him to say and do these ugly things, then it must be correct for the rest of us to say and do these ugly things. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what's happening in my estimation. Yeah. In my experience, that's been the case. In my research, that's been the case. That people who are overtly racist follow strong authoritarian sort of figures. I mean, fascist-like figures that they that they you know that they can uh, uh, follow. So that's been my experience as well too. Although, as a black man during the uh, Obama uh, administration, I I saw a lot of this ugliness unleashed in 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 ways I hadn't seen it unleashed before in my lifetime. Um, yeah, because there was yeah, because yeah, exactly, exactly. You might also be smart, and we can't allow that to be part of our real our reality. Must not be that black males and females, red, yellow, brown, whatever color group, are just as capable, just as intelligent, just as valuable as members of the white color group are. Mm-hmm. Well. I went through that as a you know a professor and having a PhD that, that I saw the the, the, the threatening <laughs> pose of uh, the, the, the threat that it seemed that I posed to certain individuals because oh he has a brain so yeah I've gone through that. How dare you have a PhD? How dare you do that? We tried we did our best to keep that from happening. Yeah. This how did we fail? And that's exactly what I've heard people say. Yeah. I don't know how he did it. Yeah. That shouldn't have happened. How did yeah. that happen? Well, and I think, don't you know? Yeah. Do you not know how, how brilliant many of these other color groups well, are? Because if they weren't, there would no, there would be white color groups. Exactly. Well, here's the thing. I've heard the saying, just like, you know, I had black friends. I've heard, you know, you know most of my life, you're smart for a black person. <laughs> <laughs> You're a good black person. Yeah. You're yeah. one of the good ones. Yeah. Anybody ever walked up to you and said, when I see you, I don't see you black. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. go down the oh, list. Yeah. <laughs> and all of a okay. sudden our conversation ends <laughs> we're gonna this, we're gonna sneak a couple of more questions in yeah, here okay well, 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 i think this, this sets us up perfectly for the next question we wanted to ask you is over the years what are the most surprising responses that you have had um, to the work that you do, you know, either the good or the not so good responses. What are some of the most resp uh, uh, surprising responses that you've seen from people through the years? The good most exciting and most wonderful and most long-lasting uh, uh, experience that I've had is the second year I did the exercise, it was filmed by the, filmed by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Mm -hmm. I showed that film to my father. My father was about 58 years old at the time. We were in the hotel that my parents and I owned, and we were sitting there, and I showed him this film, and when it was over, 
my father, who was, and I had never seen cry since my little sister died at the age of three, mm. stood up, pulled his handkerchief, his red handkerchief, out of the back pocket of his blue overalls, mm. and blowing his nose and with tears in his, on his face, said, I wish somebody had taught me that when I was nine years old. Mm. Oh, wow. Whoa. Oh. Now, I'll never forget that. Yeah. And when somebody says, this is the wrong thing to do, I think of my moral father saying, mm. I wish somebody had taught me that when I was nine years old. Mm. He learned at late 50s, but he should have learned when he was nine years old. Mm. And what mm. we all should have learned, at least by the time we're nine years old. Mm. So nobody can tell me that that doesn't work or that it doesn't matter or that you can't change people. Another really, really astounding thing that has happened just happened in the last year. Two of the boys who are in the, the men now, who are in the film that you saw, The Eye of the Storm, Raymond and Rex, mm-hmm. got a call from the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, last spring. Asked them to come to Los Angeles to be in a documentary that they were making about the science of the brain. Mm-hmm. So those two men went out there and discussed with the moderator what was going on, what had gone on, how it happened, how it felt, how the, what they learned from it. When they finished visiting with this person, this person said, now, what we've learned here is you can change the brain. Mm-hmm. I changed those kids' brains. Mm-hmm. They were different from their peers who, who, wouldn't, who didn't go through the exercise. They were different from their relatives. Mm-hmm. They were different from the people in that community because they had an experience that Nobody around them had had. They had an experience yes. that was totally new to them. Yes. Now, yes. I, have a, I have another interview right now. Can I end this? Yes. 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 Okay. Thank you so for leaving us. If you, choose to, if you choose to discuss this any further, please call me back. We will. Thank we you will. for those powerful, powerful. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. You're certainly welcome. Thanks for calling. Bye now. Bye now. Well, I that was worth the wait. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> what a powerful thing, you know, a powerful gift for her to have received through her father. Exactly. You know, um, yeah. because doing this type of work is is not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of backlash. There are death threats. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you have to be determined to continue in this in this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who are literally dying. We see this on the news way too frequently mm-hmm. uh, because people are just choosing to live the life that they have been given. Um, for her to have received such a powerful gift from her father in that way must have strengthened and fortified her through the fight. Yeah, yeah. I um I think about some of the uh, workshops and lectures. Uh, that uh, we've been able to do over the uh, over the years, and um, I think about the good, and I also think about the bad, and I think about the ugly, uh, because it's filled with all that. Because you're dealing with the human experience. That's right. You're dealing with the human experience. You're dealing with the human experience. And um, so you deal with the good and the bad and the ugly, but there's absolutely positively no way you can do this work. And as and as hard as you have to be sometimes on the participants to help them to get into that uncomfortable place that allows them to learn, you could not do this work unless you had a love for humanity, 
Amen. Unless you have a love for him, you cannot do this work. You would have to stop doing it if you didn't. Because there are too many days where it doesn't seem like it's worth it. There, there are too many days where it seems like people are not listening. That's right. Okay? That they're not going to get it. So there are too many days like that. There are too many weeks, there are too many hours, there are too many months, there are too many years where it seems like the message is just not getting through. Society will never change. And maybe society won't ever change. But I never... And I, I, speaking for myself, I never started doing this because I thought society would change. But I figured that one person might get it. And if you've ever been an educator, if you've ever been a teacher, that one student where you see the light bulb go off over their head is worth all the students who check out on you. <laughs> That's absolutely right. That one student where the light bulb actually goes off over their head, it's like, whoa. Absolutely right. Okay, this is worth it because it it's it it gets you through the hard times. It gets you through to see that one person. Okay, they got it. Yeah. They got it. Now I would ha hazard to say that you know our approval ratings when we do our uh, workshops, our approval ratings when we do. Uh, our lectures and seminars are, you know, cl close to perfect on a scale of five. We're at a, like a 4.6 overall from all the workshops and lectures we've done. So we've gotten high approval ratings. So you know, evidently it's been more than just that one person. But if the approval rating was 2.0, okay, out of the five, that 2.0 would have gotten me through <laughs> the, the, the scores of people who said, we, we can't stand what you're doing. Because that's what makes it worthwhile. It, look, if, you're getting, if, you, if you believe that anti-racism or cultural proficiency is about changing the minds of the masses, you better forget about it. Yeah. You better forget about it. Just like if you think education and teaching is like the masses of children and students adoringly looking at you as you lecture, then you, you, you better get out of it. Here's the thing. We are, at best, male persons, male delivery persons. We deliver the mail. How that letter is received, how it's opened, what they do with the contents is not up to you. It is your duty, it is your responsibility to get that letter in their hands. It makes me think of, as you brought that up, I was going back in my mind. It was actually the first workshop that you and I had ever done together. And at one of our break times, there was a, a young white man who came up to me. Um, well, maybe he wasn't quite so young to me at the time. <laughs> he was about 30. And he came up to me and he said, you know what? He said, I'm so glad I came today. And I said, oh, why is that? He said, well, he said, you don't know. He said, but I was sitting in my driveway with one leg in my car and one leg out. He said, and I sat there for a half an hour trying to decide, do I really want to do this today? It's a Saturday. 
why should I waste my Saturday coming here, going to this workshop? Although it was a requirement that he needed to fulfill at some time. He said, the reason why I hesitated wasn't even so much that it was Saturday. He said, but I heard some of the people come back and say how it was so full of hate. And I thought about it and I thought, do I want to sit through a three hour workshop full of hatred? And he said, they couldn't have been more wrong. He said, all I hear is love coming from the both of you. He said, you're speaking some very hard truths. He said, but I hear not one tone of hatred. I hear not one tone of disrespect. He said, you're speaking hard truth. He said, and all I hear is love. <clears throat> and what you just said made me think of that is, is that we are not responsible for how people will receive the truth. We're only responsible for how we deliver it. Mm -hmm. And if we are delivering the truth in love, because we love humanity, right? we love people, we love the fact that the human race mm -hmm. is worthy of love and is worthy of living up to truth, mm -hmm. then all our responsibility for is to speak that truth in love mm -hmm. and pray and hope that those who hear the words of truth and love, not just speaking about us, but anybody mm -hmm. who's speaking the truth in love, mm -hmm. hope and pray that those who are hearing it shall receive it in the same way. Mm -hmm. And again, that pebble, that rippling effect will take mm -hmm. place in their lives. Yeah. yeah. I, I was, I mean, in my mind, I'm going over uh, some of the things that, you know, she said. Uh, one of the interesting things is that she said it wasn't about people have been talking about for the last 15 years, white privilege, and it's about white ignorance. And from that point of view, I think I slightly diverge mm -hmm. because the ignorance itself is a privilege. Yes. <laughs> because yes. the ignorance itself is a privilege. Yes. I don't have as a black person the privilege of that sort of ignorance. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. I would love, I would love to not know some of the stuff I know. You pay for it severely. You know exactly. There's a price to be paid when you're black and you're ignorant. Okay. Mm -hmm. The privilege you have is that I can be white and ignorant, and there's not a penalty for that. At exactly. least not in the social sense. Right. At least not in the uh, societal sense. Right. Now, in the moral sense, I believe you pay for ignorance no matter what the color of your skin is, right. in the moral sense you do. But in the social and the societal sense, no, there is no yes. penalty for white ignorance. Right. There's a penalty for black ignorance. There's a penalty for native ignorance. Mm -hmm. There's a penalty for Latino and Latina mm -hmm. ignorance. There are penalties for all that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay? But there's absolutely, positively, no penalty in society for being white and ignorant when it comes to these sort of things. There's not really a, there's not a price you pay for that ignorance. So that's a privilege. Yeah. Anytime you get more than you should, or anytime you don't receive as much uh, grief as you should, hey, I'm sorry, I call that a privilege. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I call that a privilege. I do, I call that a privilege. So, you know, yep. that, that we, we slightly diverge off that. And I think that we still need to talk about these places of quote unquote privilege. But I do understand what she's saying in this sense, that you can keep trumpeting the, that phrase, 
And this is where we have to really shake it up a bit. When you get locked, locked into phrases and locked into terminology, yeah, it helps you to understand a dynamic easier initially when there's a phrase you can grab a hold to. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like, you think about this. Think about this. Think about that song that you liked the first time it came on the radio. And then they played it over and over and over and over and over again. And it went from your favorite song to you're not, you can't even stand it anymore because they played it so much. It's that same way. Human beings are built funny. I, I don't know what the reason is, but it's the exact same way when you overuse terminology. That it becomes tiresome to the ears. Mm. Now, does that mean we stop telling the truth about stuff? No, uh-uh, no. You don't stop telling the truth. But in certain situations, if I'm dealing with individuals, I try to figure out where that individual is coming from with their baggage of racism. Mm. Mm. Then I figure out, okay, what, what can I tap into in that individual? that'll help that white person understand where they're at instead of, you know, trying to use these, you know, labels yeah. and phrases or intellectual or intellectual post-it notes, right. you know, <laughs> <laughs> where I reduce it to some sort of post-it note uh, instead of delving into, okay, and that's the one thing that I did in training quite a bit. I'm searching and I'm listening to them talk it's like, wait a minute, how do I get to that person? And I think that's where we have to come back. It has to come down to, okay, I know that racism is a cultural, societal, historical dynamic. Dynamic, okay? But, it's also an individual phenomenon. It's dealing with a systemic, well. Exactly. It's an what, individual phenomenon. Yeah, so dealing with the systemic issues of white privilege, because we can't get away from that. Um, you know, white people can drive down the street without being afraid they're going to be pulled over. Exactly. Uh, whereas, let's face it, uh, black and Latino people do not have that same privilege afforded mm -hmm. them. So you're dealing with a systemic, while. You are relating mm -hmm. with the individual, right. not to the individual, but with the individual. Mm -hmm. Because bottom line of it is, is, is that person by person by person makes up the entire society. Exactly. exactly. And if we care enough about humanity mm -hmm. to do cultural proficiency or do anti-racism, mm -hmm. yes, we want to change the construct of societal mm -hmm. systemic racism. Would be nice. However, <laughs> if you're going to have a long-lasting effect in doing this work, it has to be a heart attitude, which comes around to the continuum of change, what right. we were talking about before exactly. Jane Elliott came on. Awareness. That's right. right. Attitudes have to change in order for policy mm -hmm. to work. Exactly. Exactly. And and so you, you, we come back to what we do. What, how, how do our workshops start off? We start off by having people pair up 
and tell their personal stories about yes. this journey. When was the first time you realized that people were treated differently based upon the color of their skin? Yes. Who had the most profound impact on your life when it, came, when it comes to understanding ethnicity? And yeah, there's only one race and it's just a social construct, but let's face it, that's the word we use. So uh, when was the, who had the most profound impact on you when it came to your understanding of race or racism, negatively or positively? Yes. So you, you have them tell that personal story, lock into each other's stories. Then you take them into the systemic. Then you take them into the institutional. Mm -hmm. So it has to be, it has to have all those pillars involved in it in order for it to have any impact, in order for it to have any impact, because there is, as I said before, a there is a tape recorder or a DVD recorder playing in your head from the time you get into this world, even when you are, you know, in, in utero, okay? <laughs> okay. There is a there is a DVD recorder playing and it's being and things are being recorded on there that you have absolutely positively no control over. None. It's your environment. It's the things that you hear. It's the conditioning that you go through being in the environment that you're in. I'm not holding you accountable so much for that. But then there's another DVD player or another DVD recorder, or another camcorder, or, you know, phone cam. <laughs> because, you know, you tell me how long I've been doing this. I started with tape recorder, now I'm, now, now I'm down to, you know, the phones now. <laughs> and and that's that second one, though, that second recorder, whatever it is, whatever form it's in, it's the things that you choose to put on there. It's the things you choose to believe. That's right. It's the attitudes and the behaviors you decide to nurture. That's right. And you right. are accountable and responsible for that because only until you address that which you had responsibility for can you begin to unpack the things that you didn't have any responsibility for. That's right. That's right. Okay? So I understand that there are certain ways that people are because of conditioning. Mm -hmm. Conditioning. Here's the thing. You've been in situations before, people. You've been in situations before, and in the heat of an argument or in the heat of a discussion, something flies out of your mouth. You say, oh, my Lord, I didn't know that was even in there. You check yourself because you didn't realize that was flying out of your mouth. Why? Because you've been conditioned a certain way. You didn't know it was there. You didn't understand that was in you. That's a human condition okay but built within that human condition is the phenomenon the construct and the injustice of race and racism mm. Mm. that's part of the human condition that we chose mm. okay so that has to be addressed as well too i mean this was a great interview and i would have loved to talk to a longer uh, i am going to edit this so that all the attempts of trying to get a hold of her will not be on air <laughs> <laughs> 
I will be editing this so you can just hear the part where we actually have her on. And, um, you know, I mean, some of the things that we talked about were pretty good, you know, um, before she came on. Uh, and I'll see if I can, you know, keep those things in there. But it's going to be kind of difficult to, to, to glean all that out, you know, without, you know, the, the attempts to get her uh, on the air. Um, but uh, this was a wonderful experience doing our first uh, uh, Rhymes Media Group program together. It was. I thoroughly enjoyed having Jane on. Thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, just to say one last thing uh, off of what you were saying. Mm -hmm. There's a phrase that says that children live what they learn. Mm -hmm. And as we noticed time and time again in the workshops and the seminars, when people would talk about their personal experiences of when they first started learning about racism in their own life, it was not surprising that based upon what their first experiences were is what led them to continue learning in a certain vein mm -hmm. because most of their experiences were at a young age in the environment that they had grown up in mm -hmm. but children are not the only ones who learn they're not the only ones who live what they learn mm -hmm. adults do we make choices all the time yeah. as to what we will listen to what we will read, who we will converse with, who we will spend time with. Every single one of us makes choices. And let's face it, every single one of us had to and have to unlearn certain things that we were taught when we were children. Mm -hmm. So is racism no different? Is racism something that we can change because we have changed other things in our lives based upon mm -hmm. what we choose to do? Right. based upon what we choose to have as our attitude. Mm -hmm. So not only do children live what they learn, we all live what we learn. All right. Well, that does it for this special Rhymes Reasons. Um, this is the end of the show. And Thelma Rhymes, Grandbaby Boy, and Thelma and, and Helen. <laughs> <laughs> She'd love that. <laughs> and Helen's baby granddaughter has got to go. <laughs> God bless ya. God Be, bless safe. You. Be safe. Take, Take care. care.